Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hey folks, welcome back to OMD Daily. This is the June 9th, 2020 recording. And if you enjoyed yesterday's episode, which was a book review of Egoist Enemy, then you're going to be in for a nice treat again for today's episode because it's another book review. If you're looking forward to a business analysis, I apologize, uh, timing of things, and also just, I think, the serendipity of it all uh, led to doing another book review. I do have a queue of kind of a a various set of works that I should look into, like whether it's a list of companies to explore, a list of books I have to review, but each day I end up, I kind of give myself the freedom and the optionality to choose what it is I'm going to look at. To be fair, I started looking at a company this morning, but the nature of this business is something beyond me. Um, just my, it's it's a very engineering and developer focused company, and my lack of understanding and limitations related to that field has been has taken me a while to to say kind of briefly that I don't know a lot of things, so I've had to try to understand things, and that's taken some time more so than I would have wanted and so that's kind of delayed my ability to read through the entire annual report and kind of get more familiar with the business itself it makes you think maybe i should just skip that and go into a company i have more familiarity on but the there were aspects of this company that were very intriguing in terms of its culture which what which is why i'm looking at it but Hopefully, uh, I don't know, maybe I'll have it ready for tomorrow. We'll see. Maybe I'll choose a different company because this is just in the too hard pile. Um, We'll see how it goes. But so for today, the book I'll be talking about is called The Inner Game of Tennis, The Classic Guide to the Mental Side of Peak Performance by Timothy Galway. And if you're not familiar with this book, it's kind I would say it it would probably fit in like the top 10 books related to coaching and kind of. Uh, more so like it's performance coaching and just kind of high performance genre in general um it's if you're in the kind of tim ferris circle of learning and the people that he talks about um this book probably came up numerous times it's the book focuses on uh tim galloway's experience as a coach in tennis and so he pulls out all these frameworks and models from there, but it's something that can be really applicable to any kind of high performance arena, not just any, not just limited to sports where you're a one to one match against an opponent. And this this particular book was interesting for me to review today because I started a new book. So I think yesterday I talked about how I finished the Monk of Mocha by Dave Eggers and. I was looking through my bookshelf and I, I have this kind of pile of books that I have to read. I just kind of like to have a lot of options so that I'm not so that I can kind of, you know, get the flavor of the month kind of thing. And I decided to read Flow by Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi 
and he is kind of the I would say the OG foundational scientist who popularized I'd say um, the work of flow and flow states. And if you don't know what flow states is, it's the idea of it's the zone where you are doing something and you love it so much that you f- you just completely forget the passage of time. And I think for me, a lot of times I, f- I felt it when I'd be doing like a podcast interview and I have no idea that time's gone by so quickly. Or when I'm playing um, video games, I, I'd always lose track of time. When I'm watching TV shows, I lose complete track of time. Um, sometimes when I'm reading some really engaging books or even when I'm reading about a company, um, yeah, I'll lose track of time. So those kinds of moments where you're just ex- you're just in this form of ecstasy, you're just so excited, um, and yeah, you forget to eat, you forget to sleep, you forget to go to the bathroom, all that. The world just is like a blur, and you're not even conscious that this is how focused you are. It just happens naturally. And that's what I think a higher-level definition of flow is. I'm getting into the nitty-gritty, the science and experimentations of it right now as I read the book. Uh, today was day one of it, so forgive me if my explanation's a little off and not as concrete. But because I was reading that book, I thought, hmm, well, I also read Ego is the Enemy. I reviewed Ego is the Enemy yesterday, and I felt this book would tie really well with the current book I'm reading so that it could also kind of give me a secondary perspective to the work of flow states. Um... Because as I've read the book today, I felt there was a little bit of bias from the main author. So I, I felt this would be a good way to refresh my mind from someone else's experience. Someone who's actually a practitioner compared to someone who's a scientist. Because I think that those are two very different things. And so if I were to start off, like always, for book notes, the one sentence summary for the book is, I believe it's an excellent overview of building a framework to achieve peak performance in sports and life through the lens of tennis. The rating that I would like to give this book as of today is that it's easy to read, direct, and based on experience. And given all that, it exceeds 8 out of 10. Take it, take that as you will. Um, that might mean it's 9 out of 10. That might mean it's 10 out of 10. I don't know. I just know it's better than 8 out of 10, and that's my rating. Cool. So I think what I implemented as of yesterday is... Most, I mean, all my notes are on the website at omdventures.com. So check out the full notes of each chapter and a mix of my commentary and the quotes from the book. But what I'll talk about today are just very specific points that I put asterisks on, uh, a double asterisk actually. And so I'll talk about those. So anything that doesn't have that will not be talked about. So feel free to visit the website to learn more. Okay. So the first point I want to talk about is in chapter three called Quieting Self One. And this is very foundational to the book. Um, Galloway talks about a self one and a self two in existence. Self one is categorized as this uh, teller, teller quote unquote personality. And self two is the doer personality. And I felt there was kind of resemblance to the system one and system two idea that uh, Kahneman and Tversky talked about in Thinking Fast and Slow, where I, if I'm cor- if I'm not mistaken, I think uh, System One was the kind of gut instinct, where it, um, the initial impulsive 
mind mindset and the action and system two is the one that stops and thinks and so in galway's definition of the self one and self two self one is closer to system one um sorry self one is closer to system two which is the kind of the inner voice that makes you think that makes you reflect on the past maybe you know consider base rates consider what you've done historically and the self two is more like system one it's the initial reaction it's the gut it's the body just moving ahead of its own uh without even thinking about things and the the first thought i had with like learn, learning about um that for example system two or sorry the self two um was that it's kind of like the body just acting out on itself whereas you know self one is consciously thinking and it Sometimes it may even give like the positive reinforcements to uh, self too, because self too just is kind of just acting acting things out. But it seems like the problem that really resides with the self one uh, self one is that it will immediately attribute any action as good, bad, negative, or positive uh, based on the result. So it creates attachment to what has ha- happened, like what has happened in the outcome, and. What I can do is, is that it creates more labeling for self too. So if self two wants to do, you know, you do like a practice shot in tennis that Galway talks about, and it doesn't go well, then all this negative speak comes in, where it's oh that was bad, like I made a mistake, um, I suck, or it's because I did X Y Z, I guess because I tilted my wrist, and all this kind of stuff comes in and it reinforces how you start acting, and just like how the mind leads the body, that literally becomes a case of self one. And the thing is that self two really needs to be detached from self one because the the way the body works is you want to be able to te- give it kind of more of a every time you practice you want to create an independent scenario. So just because let's say the first practice swing it didn't go well, the next practice swing it's going to now get influenced by self one telling self two oh you you messed up in the first practice so watch out it's gonna probably happen again. Um, if you do X Y Z, it's probably gonna happen again, and so that actually tenses you up. Whereas, what really helps self too is to kind of have self one not be present at all, and the body doesn't know that your first practice shot was trash. It treats each independent, um, I mean, each practice, I guess, round, quote unquote, or set as an independent outcome. And so, what really needs to be done is for one to quiet self one um and the key to do that is to take the stance of kind of being this bystander that can it's it's like the it's like a parent so if i were, if i were to use the idea of a parent it's kind of like when you know you see some other kid someone else's kid who wants to take risks and be an entrepreneur or do some kind of um take a career risk for example that they just believe in you you end up supporting them but then if it's your own kid you might tell them, no, don't take any risks, uh, be safe, don't do any of that. Although that might still, taking the risk might be, you know, the better choice for your own kid. But self one is this kind of limiting factor where you're choosing not to just observe and acknowledge things, you're trying to kind of meddle in and you're trying to be conscious about things, which becomes this uh, barrier to achieving the quote unquote flow state, um, the zone of peak performance. And self one is the the part of your body that constantly overthinks, that that consciously tries to think about things. And in the earlier chapters, I didn't kind of go through 
Um, but the, the key kind of theme there is that Galway talks about how the the real focus, the real art that you're trying to master is not mastering skill, but mastering um, the idea of having effortless concentration. And the effortless part comes with self too, because self too is the unconscious part where um, your body can actually just work things out. And I think another good analogy that I read in the book that I want to share is this. So uh, the quote goes, read the simple analogy and see if an alternative to the judging process doesn't begin to emerge. When we plant a rose seed in the earth, we notice that it is small, but we do not criticize it as rootless and stemless. We treat it as a seed, giving it the water and nourishment required of a seed. When it first shoots up out of the earth, we don't condemn it as immature and un underdeveloped, nor do we criticize the buds for not being open when they appear. We stand in we stand in wonder at the process taking place and give the plant the care it needs at each stage of its development. The rose is a rose, from the time it is a seed to the time it dies. Within it, all the time it contains its whole potential. It seems to be constantly in the process of change, yet at each state, at each moment, it is perfectly all right as it is. I honestly felt this was an awesome analogy, um, sorry, end quote, I thought this was an awesome analogy kind of that talks about patience in the process of growth. And it's the key factor of understanding um, and that understanding and ob objectivity is what self one needs um, to be able to stand back and just observe the slow progress. And the next point I want to talk about is in chapter four, trusting self two, which is the next kind of key important thing after you quiet self one. Um, the quote that I'll read goes, Getting the clearest possible image of your desired outcomes is a most useful method for communicating with self too. End quote. This, I think, is a very key part of, um, I think, trusting self too, but also becoming familiar with it. And trusting self too in incorporates this idea of um, being able to like visualize everything. And this could probably, like, it's not just, I think, applicable in physical training, but probably also in one's career as well. Like, I think in terms of training, like, I remember, um, like, when I was even doing, like, wrestling back in high school, yeah, you, you want to visualize the techniques that you're learning, how to throw the opponent um, and execute on drops. Um, same for when I do powerlifting, I try to visualize specific techniques, like, very specific movement patterns for for example, the squat or the bench press, like where your knee should be, where your elbow should be, where how flexed your back or your upper uh, traps should be. And I think this is actually applicable even uh, in Korea as well, where, you know, there's the there are various practices like, you know, ma making a uh, vision board or an exercise that Debbie Billman um, talks about. I think she's... She's a designer and artist who's just super famous. Um, if you look up her work, like it, like she's been interviewed by all the top podcasters, etc. And she runs this super famous design podcast as well. But she has this wonderful exercise that I love doing um, that I've done a couple times actually with friends and with myself, uh, where you write out your life in ten years. Um, she has a name for it. I, I think it's something like the ten year your life in ten years or your, your dream life in ten years or something. But it's about getting super specific and creating a vision and. It's, I think the more specific it gets, the more power, powerful it will be. And just like how in physical training, when you have those kinds of visions of the path that you need to follow or for tennis, like the path that your racket should follow, the ball should follow, 
um, to make that shot work, um, to make a lift work, or to make a career transition work. Um, I think when you visualize these things, your body will react to it. And so for physical training, it makes kind of, it's an easy analogy because yeah, okay, so your body will sleep through it. And when you practice, your body will know you, your mind will tell your body exactly what it was visualizing. I think even for like, even for investing or for your career or your life in general, like when you start visualizing these things, one part of your body that reacts is your gut. And I think that's where the idea gut instinct comes from. Like, you know, when your gut, whether this is a, the right decision or not, whether it's a hell yes or no. Um, and I think it comes because of the conditioning you do. And that actually becomes, so then that makes the visioning, vision exercise extremely valuable. If you've never done it before, then yeah, you can't really trust your gut instinct because you have no gut instinct to really like think about. Like there was no vision. There's Your body doesn't even know what you want or desire. It only knows maybe the fear you have or the insecurity you have, um, but it has no direction. But if you've constantly built that out, then the idea is that the gut will probably know. And the more you reinforce that vision, the more possibly clearer it will poss- uh, potentially be. And this kind of gets talked about, I think, in a later part of the... Uh, actually, this actually is a great segue um, to the next point, which is in Chapter 5 called Discovering Technique. And riffing off of the previous point, I think... Uh, this chapter kind of talks deeply about why um, you want to focus on self too and how learning to listen to trust, listen to and trust self too is really um, being able to listen to the gut instinct that you have. And it's the, I think it's the idea that um, your gut gets experience, um, your gut develops with more quote unquote experience. And that's, truly the value of the 10,000 hours that uh, Anders Ericsson uh, talks about in his own research. And even going further than the 10,000 hours, um, Naval Ravikant has previously talked um, talked about how the 10,000 hours can really be 10,000 iterations. And I actually think that the 10,000 iterations might actually be a more accurate view of what you're trying to do because you're, you're constantly trying to tweak and tweak and tweak with each uh, independent practice uh, scenario that you impose so with each set or rep you do you're constantly making small incremental improvements which makes the 10,000 hours extremely powerful because you went through 10,000 iterations uh, of slowly perfecting something so if you think about the compounding effect of things it'll be just immensely valuable if you iterate it for 10,000 times compared to a thousand times and the value actually if you actually go through the process of iterating something for 10,000 times, your gut just becomes extremely refined. Your body becomes extremely refined. And, you know, the, I think the idea of the 10,000 hours practice, um, I think it was uh, David Epstein who talks about how the 10,000 hours rule is kind of limited because it's in a fixed environment in, you know, for example, sports or piano, like uh, music. Um, But, even if you apply it to a wicked environment, which is what kind of life is or what investing is, where you have a lot of variables hitting you, it can still be really applicable because you've still amassed a certain level of experience. And it's that experience that leads the mind to make these kinds of unconscious decisions. And your mind is such a super powerful computer that that's where the value of listening to your gut comes in, where it's, it's literally like how machine learning really works, right? You continuously add more data and then it gets a little more accurate each time. And 
it's not even like the same data points, but more different data points. And that's what the 10,000 iterations are. And I think the, the general kind of concept uh, that's covered in this chapter is that self two learns through experience and self learn self one learns concepts from reading instructions. Hence, without trusting self two, you won't be able to really achieve excellence because instructions are mere results of someone else. Um, someone else's self two learning by experience. It's like reading about investing versus actually investing. It's completely different. And this could probably be the same for uh, biographies, like whether you read about business tactics, strategy, stories, um, you still really need to ex- gather your own experience because you're still only reading about someone else's self too. And it, you know, sometimes you, you might actually have um, the learning capability to own, to just digest completely other people's self too. And your self one is so powerful that it can make things work. But as Galway points, no teacher is greater than one's own experience. I think um, there's definitely a limitation to constantly reading about things, which kind of is a shame because I love reading, but I know for a fact that I'm not a very good learner from just reading. I tend to have to make a lot of failures to learn. So that's just how I've been able to live my life, as painful as it is. It's something I've had to be accepting of. And uh, the final point about this chapter is that I'll kind of quote Galway here where he says, great deal of technique can be learned naturally by simply paying close attention to one's body, end quote. And I think this is the key thing where it's not just physical training, but mental uh, training as well, where, for example, if it's investing, keep when you keep a decision journal, when you keep a investing journal. Um, I've had, I think, from reading this book, I've changed my mindset around just noting actions, but actually writing down my emotions, not even related to actions. Even inaction is a decision in investing. So every time I don't do something or if I feel like I regret something, like not buying something, I've, I'm have i trying to make it into habit as you write things down because that's still a bodily feeling. Like an emotion is a bodily feeling, it's an instinct. And I've already had a practice of writing down things in my journal, but I think staying even more in tune with that is, ex- is exceptionally powerful to listen to. And the next point I want to talk about is in chapter six, changing habits. Um, this is just kind of a key, uh, I guess, framework for that kind of summarizes the first half of the book. So the inner game way of learning is as follows. There's four steps. One, observe exist- existing behavior non-judgmentally. Be factual. Detach self one from the process. Look at your results like a bystander would. Step two. Picture desired outcomes, which I interpret as visualize, imagine the necessary path to specifics. Step three, let it happen. Trust self too. And I interpret interpreted as trust the process. Let your intuition lead you. Do the 10,000 hours. Build more experience. Step four, non-judgmental, calm observation of the results leading to continuing observation and learning. This is where the continuous iteration comes in, I believe. And when you compare that to the traditional approach, which has four steps of one, criticize or judge past behavior, aka listening to self one. Step two, tell yourself to change instructing with word commands repeatedly, where you're just very just focused on that building off of a past um, action. And once again, you're getting attached. And then step three, try hard, make yourself do it right. Oh, that's once again, being too conscious, like you will never achieve flow state if you're actually conscious of it. That's the weird dichotomy. The harder you try to do something, the more tense you will become. And that's why, yeah, like 
uh, that's why some people under pressure won't do well because they really want to get it and they end up trying too hard. Step four, critical judgment about results leading to a self-fund vicious cycle. Yeah, and that's just kind of when you fail to iterate uh, on an objective note and you just become more emotional and more attached. So yeah, I think I think something that I took away from that particular chapter was how I realized that I, you know, I've definitely failed in adhering to these four steps. I think I got to try to maybe even like just put this out and on my bedroom wall or something as a framework because even when I write my like daily journals, for example, actually this is this is this is a good point. I never wrote this down, but I'm going to make a note to myself to actually write this down for my own bedroom uh, wall so I can put it on a post-it. Excellent. You see, all the in- all the interesting stuff that happens when I just talk about book notes. Awesome. Okay. Anyhow, yeah, I've just noticed how um, that I am sometimes, you know, hypocritical and I tend to be really hard on myself in my journals, like my end-of-day journals or even my morning journals where I'll lament my own ineffectiveness of the day before thinking, oh, man, I didn't work as hard. I wasn't as focused. And, you know, you've been a shitty person, Dan, for not being, you know, not being hyper-effective. And I realize now that, yeah, I took the traditional approach and that's nowhere, no way to really fix anything. The way to do it is to quiet myself oneself and actually sit down observe and just objectively wrote whether I was distracted today or whatnot and just try to pull emotions out of it just objectively write what happened Um, and then try to make an incremental step of what can I learn from this and what can I implement the next day to slightly become better so I think yeah, I think maybe even asking those questions would be super helpful. Um, I should also make note of that. Th- that's two things to make note of. Sorry, I'm just going to write that down. All right, I've made a note. And okay, so moving on to the next chapter, chapter seven, concentration, learning to focus. I thought this was a very key chapter. Um, A lot of chapters are key, but this was very key for me personally, because this chapter talks about the zone and the flow state. Um, These are the areas you reach when you hit that moment of ecstasy that I talked about when things slow down around you and you hit that state of peak performance. Um, People think there is a formula to reach it, but the only... That, that but that really only triggers uh, self one because you become conscious of it and you start telling yourself that I want to hit the zone and the more you try to hit <laughs> quote unquote the zone you will never reach the zone and so the really the thing to do is to quiet self one and trust in self two to eventually take you there and the litmus test is that if you have to ask yourself if you're in flow state you are not because you the weird dichotomy is that you really aren't can't be aware of it it's more so you look at the outcome and you go, oh, look at this passage of time or something like that. Um, yeah, self one will really obsess to make sure you do things the right way. And really for this to happen, you have to learn to trust the process and constantly stay observant of self too. Listen to your body, be aware. Um, when you focus on staying present, then you can be aware of your body. And only then will you be able to know you have entered into the zone. Um, you can't force it 
and and it probably inadvertently comes as a result of reaching a point of absolute focus. The and so this kind of goes into the question of um, you know what is natural focus, and Galway says natural focus occurs when the mind is interested. When this occurs, the mind is drawn irresistibly toward the object or subject of interest. It is effortless and relaxed, not tense and overly controlled. And for me, I think the big learning there was that you even you actually want to like taking the inverse of that where to create that kind of environment where I can be interested, where I can be drawn specifically to a particular subject to be relaxed and effortless, to be not tense. Um, I should probably create an environment that's not as distracting. Like when I think about times when I'm in full state, I'm usually not distracted. Like when I'm, when I forget the passage of time from reading, I'm usually at home um, reading in a quiet room and not distracted by people walking outside when compared to like when I read at a park, I realize my reading speed is extremely slow when I'm reading out at a park, no matter how nice the weather is. Um, that's the same thing when I train in powerlifting. I I learn to not listen to any music or podcast when I'm actually con- conducting the lift itself. So when I'm actually squatting, I won't listen to anything, but instead I should tailor my focus to breathing. Um, so then that becomes singular focus. Like in how tennis, Galway talks about how people say, watch the ball as a way of maintaining focus as a technique that they use and that can be used for other sports like focus on breathing um and i think limiting distractions also forcibly makes you focus on what you're doing because like for example when i work i put my phone on airplane mode and turn my laptop um wi-fi off and that is really helpful every time i fail to do that i realize that i get extremely distracted so that's another way to i think build an environment that creates focus and bear with me i have three final topics to talk about i'll try to make it quick chapter eight games people play on the court um the quote goes we are what we are we are not how well we happen to perform at a given moment this uh, uh, refers to not tying your self-worth and value to the result of your performance um no one should judge you by artificial competition made by other people that's not how human value should be judged by I don't know what the right way is, but arbitrary measures like money, fame, and performance is not really the right right measure, in my opinion. Um, I think it's, once again, I think it's just important to pick out what's not uh, the right measure, more so than what is the right measure. So that, I felt, was a pretty important point to keep in mind. Chapter 9, the meaning of competition. Uh, I think the key thing here is that everything is competition. Everything's a competition. Um, but... I think there is a belief that sometimes competition is toxic. And in one way, uh, Galway talks about how competition could actually just be based on an insecurity and self-doubt you have with oneself, with your own self. And you have to prove it to yourself and to other people to overcome that. But I think the positive way uh, to think about competition, as Galway puts it, is to think of it as overcoming an obstacle. It might be that the person is this proxy obstacle, but they're actually cooperating with you to make you into a better person. Realize that um, competition will only make you stronger. Like if you try to win just by gamifying rules and finding loopholes, you're not making anyone better. You, It's just a greater sign of your own security. But if you push yourself further and you continue to compete with people who challenge you, then you're both collectively elevating your own pot- potentials and abilities as people. So that is a key part of a competition. It's about improving yourself and to obtain skills, levels at new heights. 
And finally, for the final chapter, chapter 10, the inner game off the court, um, I think the big message I took out from here was how the truly long journey of life may actually be the journey to really learn to listen to yourself too and quiet self one. Um, I think the real focus is that self one is this egotistical, externally driven person uh, of that resides in yourself that you might think is being rational, but hum- humans tend to be able to rationalize everything. So I think this is where um, it shows that my... Uh, possibly even like stance against the book like I, I personally didn't enjoy reading Thinking Fast and Slow I didn't think it was that great of a book um, and people might think that I'm poo-pooing the idea of psychology but I personally felt Robert Cialdini talked about all the ideas there much better in his book Influence but anyhow I digress um, but this I think makes me some actually believe that the value of even the systems one thinking which is the self two is actually inherently extremely valuable. It's the idea that um, you have to be able to trust your judgment, you have to be able to trust your gut, where you actually want to be in a position where you earn the right to even listen to your gut. And that actually requires a lot of practice um, where you're not driven by the ego and the short-term mind itself one. And that might be the long-term journey of life. So there you have it. I hope this was interesting for you. This was a lot of fun for me, actually. And I think I'm getting a little more comfortable with doing the, all these book notes. And I think I might have found, in a way, a pretty decent, um, I don't know, system for doing it. And I'm enjoying it so far. So I hope this is helpful. And I hope to have you back again tomorrow. So take care and have a good one.